Good evening. Well, we're on the last line of the Apostles' Creed, so we'll flash that up on the screen and say it again as we have this nine weeks or so. We've been going through a series, the four or five of us pastors on the Apostles' Creed, which are summations of the whole of Scripture. So in nine phrases, they sum God's total plan for mankind and redemption for mankind through Christ. So if you really want to know what the Bible says cover to cover, memorize this and it covers it all. It's kind of nice. And as I've said a few times already, the reason this was even written in the second century was the first creed or confession or statement of belief, and that was Jesus as Lord. Well, then it's just grown from there to this because there was a lot of heresy, there was a lot of false teaching, there was a lot of conflict with what truly was biblical and scriptural, and so the church fathers decided to succinctly lay out the gospel in a creed called the Apostles' Creed so that it would answer any doubts or questions or conflict that people would have with other uh, groups or churches or whatever. So that's why they did this. That's what it's all about. And the last line is uh, tonight's message. It's the last one. Uh, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. But let's go ahead and read the entire creed together, okay? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, right hand of the Father, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, I have to mention this all the time because just last week when we taught on uh, the church, the communion of the saints, someone came up to me and said, what's with this Catholic word? Just last week. And so I go through this every week. And so that's Catholic with a small c, and it simply means the whole church or the universal church, worldwide body of Christ. So don't be afraid of the big C word, because it's a small c. And uh, it refers to all of us all over the world who raise our vo voices and our life and our heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the church nationwide, or internationally speaking. Okay, as we come to the last we believe, now I want to remind you what we believe means. When we say we believe through this um, creed, what we're stating is more than just an intellectual belief in a historical fact. It's much more than that. It's actually a full life commitment to Christ he said, pick up your cross and follow me. That's a verb. 
It's a full life commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and everything we believe in the scriptures as they speak about him. God's word. So it's not just, there's a lot of people in America that say they believe in God, but that does not mean they know Christ personally. You understand that? Just as I've said before, you're probably getting tired of it. I believe that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president, never doubted it in my life. But I never met the man. I don't know him personally. I just know about him in history. So when you say you believe in Jesus, it's not like, well, yeah, I, I really never doubted that the Bible says that he did what he did. Well, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a commitment, a full life commitment of our life and our heart to the Lord Jesus Christ because he told us to pick up our cross and follow him. So when we talk about we believe, that's what we're saying to him, to one another, and anyone else that asks, okay? Now this last phrase, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting, if you'll notice, they're all linked together. They follow each other in sequence. So it can actually read, because we believe and put our whole life behind these truths, we have been forgiven. And because we've been forgiven, God will raise us from the dead like he raised his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And because we've been risen like Christ, we can enjoy life everlasting. Amen. And that's how that works. It's in sequence. You know, we would ask, why would the church fathers end on this particular statement? They could have ended anything on any statement like the sacrifice of Christ, uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, died on a cross. I mean, he could have said anything, but they end on this statement most likely because other than the forgiveness part, it still not has yet happened. It's our future. They end this creed with an exclamation point, and that is the hope of eternal life in the resurrection. That's why they end it that way. It's a shout of victory and the hope that you and I cherish. There's never any reason for the believer to have a hopeless life. There can be people in our life that seem hopeless, but we never have to go without hope, not when we know Christ. Why? Because when we breathe our last, we have the promise of eternal life instantly. We will be raised from the dead. Those of us that are still alive will be caught with those in the air to meet Christ and be with him forever. And life evermore, ongoingly, eternal, guess what it means? Eternal, never-ending. We go, well, that's kind of weird because I don't know. I mean, are we just going to be floating around in heaven with harps and halos? I hope not. It's a lot more promising. But the interesting thing is the Lord keeps a lot of that a secret. He, he's a God of mystery. He wants us to live on faith in what he says. 
and what we claim. So a lot of it is, as Paul would say, in a glass darkly, and we will not know it until we have seen and known him. So we have to take it by faith. But if you're truly in Christ, there's no room for hopelessness and uh, a lot of room to have confidence in what we're saying and what we're reading here. Um, so we are people that are looking ahead. We're not rear view mirror people. We don't dwell on the past. Jesus doesn't dwell on the past. He's more concerned at where, we're, where we are today and where we're going. He doesn't throw our past in our face because he's forgiven us as far as the east is from the west. And if you think about the east, on a, look on a globe, the east and the west, they never touch again. Because of Christ's sacrifice, he has forgiven us and removed our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. And because of what he did on the cross, our sin will never meet judgment. If you're a believer, the sin in your life will never face judgment because of what the Lord Jesus has done. Amen? Yeah, yeah it's okay to say that. So we're forward-looking people with hope of the resurrection. And as bad as our life can get, as you know, as bad as our life can get, I mean, you may put your head on your pillow at night and say, this is the worst day I've ever gone through in my life. And yet when you rise to your feet, sleepy-eyed the next morning, you're rising to the truth that his mercies are fresh and new every morning and there's always hope in Christ. There's a period after that statement. Always. Um, a pastor tells a story that he had an elderly woman in his congregation who was dying and preparing to meet the Lord. And so she said, Pastor, you know, she had her service all laid out and wanted to talk to him about something specific about her service. And she said, um, when I'm in the casket, would you do me a favor and place a fork in the palm of my hand as if I'm holding it? A fork. And the pastor said, well, ma'am, sure. I've had a lot of requests, but I've not had that one quite yet. Um, and so I'll, I'll do that. And then the pastor said, well, why a fork? So she explained to the pastor that her grandmother would take her to her church when she was a little girl. And after every service they would have a potluck. And of course, this little five, six-year-old girl would always end up at the dessert table like your children and my children used to do. And she would just kind of pick at the desserts and pick what she wanted. And, and the grandmother used to say, honey, honey, don't go to the dessert table that quickly because they always bring the best desserts out last. And so she said to the pastor, I know the best is the last for us as believers. I want a fork in my hand to make a statement to the Lord Jesus that I am looking forward because the best is yet to come. So you think of the most joyful experience in your life, the most loving moment in your life, 
the most broken time in your life where you wept before the Lord because of his grace and multiply that thousands and thousands and thousands of times. The most majestic scene you've ever seen in your life, which to me is, uh, you know, one of the national parks. A few of the national ones, Yellowstone, there's a few other ones. Majestic. And multiply that out. We can't wrap our brains around it. The best is yet to come. Some of you are going, praise Jesus, because, man, I was starting to lose it. Up to this point, the creed focuses on the wondrous works of God and the triune Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. But tonight, it ends on the humanity of mankind and our flawed ability to be sinless. We sin. We were born into sin, and we choose to sin. Born into it, and choose it on a daily basis. And so when we start with the word forgiveness, it is assumed that we're guilty. Forgiveness is not to be given unless there's a broken relationship and someone is guilty as far as Christ goes, of sin. And so that's where we begin. The Bible says we have all sinned, and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. What does sin mean? It simply means missing the mark. So God's mark is sinlessness. You and I have missed it. From the first moment we could speak, we've missed it. I told you about my little daughter, Christina, who's now 41, and I adore her to this day. She was the one that I thought, you know, my first child, of course, you know, maybe the Lord made a mistake because I see no sin in this little one. <laughs> Until I gave her a chocolate chip cookie, and her mother said, why'd you do that? She's ready to have lunch, and I took it back. She was a sinner for sure. <laughs> so we don't last very long in this sinless state. We're born in a sin. Okay? So the first thing we want to talk about is, with this creed tonight, we need to be forgiven. We cannot do it on our own. We need someone to step in and bring forgiveness to us and reach across to our life to forgive us, because we cannot forgive ourselves. You know, I keep saying this, and you know, because, well, I just keep saying it because it's important. It is not a biblical truth when someone says, um, I love my, I, I, we have to learn how to love ourselves. We have to learn how to forgive ourselves. That's not even a biblical truth. It's a psychological truth. It's a cultural truth but you won't find it in the Word of God. We are never told to forgive ourselves. Why? Because we can't. Only Christ can forgive our sin. Now, maybe that means we accept Christ's forgiveness, and if that's forgiving yourself, that's fine, but it's not in the Word. We need to be forgiven. So here's a song. I think it's from yesteryear, but it goes like this. We owed a debt we could not pay, Anybody remember that song? We owed a debt we could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. 
We needed someone to wash our sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. He paid a debt that I could never pay. Thank God. And he reached down and chose us, chose us to elect us and to forgive us. That came from him. Personally speaking, I wasn't even looking for him. And he kicked the door down to my life. You know the old uh, picture goes back to the 60s, 70s of Jesus standing and knocking on a door and he's in a garden? He's in a garden. Well, that comes from a, a verse out of the Revelation that he stands at the door of your heart and he knocks. And that picture has always been explained like something like this. Like we open the door of our heart, he knocks on the door of our heart, and we invite him in. And because he's a gentleman, he has to wait to be invited. That is not a biblical truth. In my life, he kicked the door down, went in, grabbed me, and dragged me out and said, you belong to me now. That's the grace of God. Somehow, Pastor Rick, though, says we mysteriously have an opportunity to participate in that process, but we don't save ourselves. We don't forgive ourselves. He has the capacity to choose us, and most of us are still wondering why he did. So we need to be forgiven. The second thing is when we sin, guilt settles in. Sin is both a legal issue with the Lord and a personal issue with the Lord. It's legal because the Word of God says, all we like sheep have gone astray, each has gone their own way, but the Lord has laid on them the iniquity of us all. He's talking about Christ prophetically. When we violate God's law, we pay a price. When we run a red light, most times we get ticketed. And I've said this before, so I won't go to it again, but I hate those things that just the flashlights. I've got dinged three times in the last three years by that light that flashed off. And I told you, I guess I will tell you, because some of you didn't hear it yet. To me, it was a humbling but a hilarious moment. So I go down, I owe $265, and I go down to the court, and, I went, you know, and I'm saying to the lady, she goes, sir, you ran a, a red light, you know, down there, uh, South Fred Meyer, that light that goes up there, and I'm um, Barnett. You ran a red light, sir. I go, no, I didn't. She goes, sir, would you like to see the video? And I said, absolutely, I would. I actually would like to see the video. First of all, when they showed me in the video, I was wearing a beanie. I looked like an ex-convict. <laughs> I wasn't smiling, my eyes looked beady. And so she shows me. I go, I know I stopped. You didn't stop, sir. Okay. I pull up to the, <laughs> the intersection. I slow down. It's called a California stop. I just kind of slowed down and went right on through. And she looked at me and she said, mm-hmm. Will that be cash or charge, sir? <laughs> There's a new one on Delta Waters. 
Mark that down. Thank you. I had them all pegged. I didn't know about that one yet. I'm marking it. Yeah. There's one near RCC. There's, you know, one. <laughs> Anyhow, you run a red light. You pay a fine. You violate God's law. You pay a fine. It's a legal issue. It's a legal issue, and it's against God. So that's one aspect of why sin is serious. But it's also a personal issue. It separates us from God. Sin separates us from God. Isaiah, I think it's 2.29, says, Your sins have separated you from God. Thankfully, the Lord Jesus took care of that problem for us. Now, when we sin, this is interesting, when we do sin, we actually sin against God, not another person. All sin is against the loving judge of the universe. So when we sin, when we lie, when we entertain lustful thoughts, there's a list this long. We have just primarily, first and foremost, sinned against God. And it's a problem. When David was finally confronted by Nathan in the book of Samuel, after having an affair with Bathsheba on the roof of his palace, just a little sidebar, we read in that passage that when the kings would go out for war in the spring, David decided to stay back, which he shouldn't have done, and on his rooftop he noticed Bathsheba. And he had his servants bring her to him, and they had an affair. She was pregnant. Her husband Uriah was on the battlefield giving his life for his king. You know, David had 30 mighty men, 30 extra mighty men. He was one of them. So loyal. And so David had a scheme. He knew he'd be coming off the battlefield, and he asked Uriah because Uriah and those faithful men would just sleep outside David's house to show their honor and their um, humility and their love for David. And David said, Uriah, why don't you just go home to your wife? Just go home to your wife. She hasn't seen you for a long time. And he refused. He said, no, king, I, that would be a violation of my loyalty to you. And so David, David's scheme didn't work. So he told one of his other commanders, when you're out on the, the field fighting the enemy, put him on the front line and withdraw from him the other soldiers, and he was killed. So he not only had an affair, he killed her husband so he wouldn't find out. And by the way, he carried that hidden sin for a year and a half as the king. A year and a half, he carried that dark sin. And finally, Nathan the prophet God said, I want you to go talk to David. And he confronted David and he told him a parable. We don't need to get into the details. You should read it. It's pretty powerful. And the first thing that David said 
was I have sinned against the Lord. And in Psalms 51, he says, against you and you alone, Lord, have I sinned. Joseph, in the book of Genesis, 17 years old, very stunningly handsome, a servant in the palace guard. You know the story of why he was there. His brother sold him, and he was faithful to God every day. And Potiphar's wife said to him, I want you to come to bed with me every day, the Bible says. Every day. And he would say, no way. How can I do this wicked thing against your husband and sin against God? So we got to know that, that when we sin, we actually sin against the Lord. Um, and then there's a personal impact. Because of that, our relationship is severed. It's broken. If you have a friend and you and your friend have had a misunderstanding and there's only one that wants to make it right and the other doesn't want to make it right, or neither one of you want to make it right, and there's a stalemate, your relationship is severed and broken. And it needs to be restored and reconciled to the former relationship. The Bible talks about that, especially Christians. Did you know the Bible says that if you've sinned against your brother and you're aware of it, you go to your brother and ask for forgiveness. And if you have been sinned against, you go to your brother and ask for forgiveness. So the ideal godly Christian Christians meet together on the way to reconcile with each other. That's the biblical model of forgiveness. You can't embrace someone or shake someone's hands with your arms folded. Can't do it. So just think about that. That's the way it is personally. Well, thankfully the Lord Jesus unfolded his arms, initiated a relationship with us, and died on Calvary's cross. 2 Corinthians says, God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ. So Christ was the one that reached us and brought the forgiveness that we needed that we could not pay on our own. So what about this whole idea of guilt and feeling forgiven? You know, we know what the word says. But I've met so many Christians in my lifetime, sincere believers that love the Lord, that doubt either their salvation or they still live in shame for their past. Well, first of all, forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a reality and fact that the Lord Jesus shed his blood for our sin and the sins of the world. It's a reality. And so if you have a sensitive conscience, you're bothered very easily, you very have a very high standard of your morals, I mean too high, in that when you fail, you carry that shame. I'm telling you right now, the Lord doesn't want you to carry it. Not even another moment. If you ask forgiveness for what you've done, 
the Lord Jesus has already wiped it away. East is from the West. You go to him and say, Lord, I, just, I, I, want to, I need to ask you for forgiveness for that sin again. He goes, what sin? It's gone. I want you to move on. But I have a tendency to think that our conviction or our guilt, this thing of forgiveness is essential. We need to believe it. We need to embrace it. It's very, very essential because uh, there's many of us that are locked up, locked up over our past. Not what God wants. About feelings. This, but I feel, I still feel guilty. I don't feel pardon. Doesn't change the fact that you are. Doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter how you feel. You're pardoned by the King of Kings. So I want to give you an illustration of the danger of going with how we feel and experience life rather than actually believing that we have forgiveness of sins. So probably 15 years ago or so, JFK Jr., John Fitzgerald Kennedy's son, you remember him, some of you, he was flying with his wife and her sister across a body of water in the Massachusetts area to go to a wedding. And he was a relatively new pilot, He had flown a bit, but he was still relatively new. And that particular night, the fog bank was so thick that he couldn't see, you know, the front of the plane. And so um, what the experts said is that he probably had a case of vertigo. Now, vertigo is when every emotion in your body is telling you one thing, and it's not lining up with reality. And what they said is the reason they think he might have had that, because he was turned around in the fog, the case of vertigo, is because of the force of the plane that hit the water. In other words, it hit the water so hard that he had to be accelerating downward, which then they would believe he thought he was going upward, but in all reality... He was going downward. And the truth of that illustration is that the monitor, the monitor on a plane, I'm sure they have broken down before, but generally speaking, the monitor on a plane doesn't lie. So the monitor probably said, you are going up. But everything screamed inside of him, or excuse me, you are going up, but he felt he was, what am I saying? (laughs) Yeah, the monitor said you're going down, and everything inside of him felt like he he was going up. Thank you. You've helped me with so many sermons. I appreciate it. (laughs) Like, what verse am I on now? What's that? You know, my nickname before I met Christ is Crash, and I still, that's, that's probably a word from the Lord, Eric. <laughs> you don't want to, or drive with me. So, when you feel, no, I'm worthy of shame. You don't know what I did before Christ. 
You don't know what I did after Christ. I'm worthy to not be pardoned. That's all based on how we feel. And it messes with our head. And the Lord's saying, forget that. The word of God is the monitor and it never lies. If you're forgiven, you're forgiven. Forever. He never brings it up again. Now, there are a few different kinds of guilt. There is what I call true guilt, which is the same as conviction. So you and I as believers, the Holy Spirit nudges us when we know we're going to do something wrong or say something wrong or think something wrong or act wrong, and we get a little check in our heart. Like, uh, you don't want to do that. And then most of us can ignore that voice. Like if I'm in a disagreement with Jenny, and I'm going to say something, and the Holy Spirit rings a little bell in my head and says, you better not say that to Jenny. And then I do, and then I understand why I shouldn't have said it to Jenny. (laughs) So we got to listen to that voice. However... When we're convicted, here's the the way it works. This is healthy. The guilt that God gives us is healthy. So when we sin, or we're about to sin and we get a check in our heart, or we sin and we feel horribly broken about it, that's a gift from God. And then when we acknowledge our sin, he lifts the guilt. David said that in Psalms 32 about his relationship with Bathsheba. He said, I acknowledge my sin, and you lifted the guilt of my sin. You lifted it. Okay? So how do you know it's the right kind of guilt? Number one, it only comes when you violate Scripture. Okay? You violate Scripture. And it's given by the Holy Spirit and lifted upon repentance. And acknowledgement. It's gone. Just take ownership. Just own it. That's true, healthy guilt. It's from the Lord, and then he lifts it. But then there's a false guilt, and that comes from the manipulation of other powerful people in your life or your own sensitive conscience. And so um, that's one that you can... Check, though. That's one that you can grow out of. When you say, Lord, I'm feeling guilty, but I've not violated the Scripture. I'm just feeling guilty because I said no to that person. Or I'm feeling really, really bad because someone was disappointed at me. I would say, well, did you violate Scripture? Did you do anything wrong? No, I just feel bad because I don't like saying no. And I like to please people. To which I would say, that is a dangerous way to live. Because if you only feel good about yourself when you please people, what are you going to do when you find that yahoo out there that can't be pleased by anything? Now what are you going to do? Okay? That's false guilt. And it also comes from the accuser of the brothers. Do not minimize Satan's ability to whisper in our ear. He can't touch our body. 
He cannot live in us. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. But do not minimize. He knows our breaking point. He knows our vulnerabilities. Do not minimize his capacity to whisper in our ear so that we feel guilty about something we shouldn't feel guilty about. So, my mom's a good illustration. She's with the Lord now. I love her deeply. Always have. I was a rascal when I was 15. I was a rascal when I was a teenager. I was a rascal before I met Christ at 23. Well, let me put it this way. One day I was sitting at the counter, the breakfast counter with my wife. It was about 5.45 in the morning. I said, Jenny, sometimes I feel like a little boy on the inside. And she said, oh, no. I go, what? She goes, I was looking forward to an empty nest someday. <laughs> so you're probably close to being accurate about that. Yeah, yeah. So anyhow, see, then I get off track here, and then here we go. What was I saying? Oh, my mom. Okay. Um, so I was really rebellious as a teenager. And uh, for some reason, my mom felt that we didn't have a good relationship, where in my mind, you know, she raised me and my brother as a single parent until we were age 10. Then she got remarried with my father, and that was a disaster. I never met my dad till I was 10. Was raised in a single parent home, some of the best 10 years of my life, being raised just by my mom. It was awesome. Then my dad showed up and it wasn't that good. Okay? So I had problems when I was a teenager, and then I came to Christ at 23. Well, I'm about 35 now, and I'm a pastor in Eureka. And it's a Sunday morning, and I'm preparing for a sermon. So we're talking 20 years from 15 to 35. 20 years. I'm following Christ. She knows my life's totally changed. And I get a phone call at 7 in the morning. And I pick up the phone, and my mother's crying. I go, Mom, what's wrong? She says, Billy, was it because we weren't close? when you were 15, that you took drugs? 20 years my mom carried that. Now, that wasn't from the Lord. That wasn't from the Lord. I said, Mom, you have always been the love of my life. You will always be the love of my life. I have never thought of that one time. No, you were the best. But that's just an example of how turned around we can be. Now let's talk about the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that a person may be guilty about something and not feel it? I've met people like that. I go, well, don't you feel convicted about that? And they go, no. I'm going, excuse me? So some people may be guilty about something they did and not feel it. Or a person may feel guilty, but shouldn't because they haven't done anything wrong. So it's kind of a wild proposition. The Lord wants us to own it, voice it, and move on because of the blood of Christ.
He shed his blood for us. Um, there's an illustration. The Bible says that we were all born as slaves to sin. Slavery. We were slaves. We had the iron chain of imprisonment, spiritually speaking. We were slaves to sin. So when Christ said, it is finished, just imagine us being imprisoned. So we're imprisoned because of our sin, spiritually speaking, we're imprisoned. And all of us are in our own little cell, prison cell with cold concrete walls and thick iron bars. Because we're slaves, prisoners to sin. When Jesus said, Father, I forgive them, or into your hands I commit my spirit, or better yet, it is finished. The word it is finished is a Greek word to telestai, and it means paid in full. And it's the plaque that they put, the Romans put, above the cell door of their prisoners when they were let go. Paid in full. Someone made the bail or something. Paid in full. You're free now. So Christ says, you are forgiven. All of the cell doors open. We're sitting in there. Our chains are snapped from our wrists and our feet. We refuse to walk out of the cell and stay imprisoned. Christ came to not only snap our chains, but to lead us right out of there into a life of freedom in Jesus. Looking forward to eternal life because you and I have been forgiven. And we read a lot of different words that talk about it. We read the word salvation. Salvation, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, every time he used the word salvation, he was thinking of how God led his people out of Egypt and delivered them from the hands of the Egyptian. They all had death sentences. Salvation. We've been saved from a death sentence. We've been saved from the chamber that we're destined to. Salvation. Redemption. Uh, that's another word that's used. There's a ton of words used. It's like the, the, the writers of Scripture is like, how many ways can we say this so you will believe that the blood of Christ is enough? Redemption. You know the fun center there, right? Um, what's it called? The Family Fun Center? And you play all these different games, and then you get tickets. You get tickets when you win the games, and you take your tickets, and it's actually called the Redemption Center. And you bring your tickets there, and you get some lame little toy. <laughs> See, you, you, you buy back. The money you spent, you buy back, and it's never what you spent, of course. You buy it back. Christ redeemed us. He, he bought our freedom when we deserve to die. Paul says we have all been bought with the price. He says it twice. 
And one of the times he says that we've all been bought with a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. He's talking about living a holy life before the Lord. So it's through Christ alone. And then we read, there's the resurrection of the body. We have forgiveness of sins, and we have the hope of our resurrected body. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, what it looks like is what we read in the scriptures when the Lord Jesus broke out of that tomb in a glorified body. He still had nail prints. He met with his disciples later in the day and ate bread and ate fish. He was able to go into an unlocked room where his disciples were hiding, no less, from the Jews and was able to meet with them. At first, he was not reconcilable, uh, uh, recognizable by Mary of Magdala. Of course, she didn't expect to see him, and she was grieving deeply. But they touched him. He revealed himself to 500 people. They knew it was the Lord Jesus. And so we also will be recognizable. The personalities that God has given us will probably stay intact. Who we are on the inside, other than our redeemed life, it's the outer body that's going to be transformed. And obviously then we'll be sinless. Um, biochemists say that every seven years, our molecular composition changes. I think that's true. I just look in the mirror and go, wow, that wasn't there seven years ago. But in our heavenly body, our personal identity remains the same. It remains the same, completely transformed on the outside, but recognizable to family and friends and to each other. It's like, I'll see you there or in the air. We will see each other again there. Remember that. C.S. Lewis says, our future bodies will be more real, more substantial, and perhaps even more alive than they are now when we get our new transformed bodies. How many of you are looking forward to that day? Amen. Yeah. So, and, I, and, and they, I'm told that we're going to be like at our, prime, our best age. So like, what was your age where, you know, you were usually, you know, when people take pictures, you go get me on the good side. That's what I usually say. Get my good side. Where was your good side? How old were you? That's how you're going to be. At your best. The best comes at the end. And then we read, finally, after we're resurrected through our body, the same way the Lord Jesus was, the same way, we will be risen as he was risen. The same way we have life everlasting. And there's not a verse in the scripture that gives more hope than that. Hope. It is said 
that we can go um, without water for three days. Now, I know some of you know more than I do about this. You're going to go, uh-uh, you can go five and a half. I got it. But generally speaking, it's not preferred. It's not recommended that you go for water without three days. I know that generally speaking, we can't go for air more than three minutes. But there's someone out here that's going to say, no, I hold my water under breath for six minutes. <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> hold my breath under water? You guys. I've learned more about teaching and preaching from you on Wednesday nights than all 43 years put together. Yes, right, right. But we can't live with hope, without hope, very long at all. We all need hope. There's not a more hopeful passage than God's forgiveness through Christ that we're going to be resurrected just like him and have life everlasting. It's the most hopeful phrase in the creed. And I'm not talking about hope in terms of wishful thinking, such as, I hope it's not 95 degrees tomorrow. That's a wish. That's a guttural plea. But it's not hope. Biblical hope is confident. Biblical hope puts us on our tippy toes looking for the coming of Christ and looking for our time when the Lord calls us home. That's the hope we have. It anchors our soul. Hebrews says it is the hope in God's word that anchors our soul. It's deep. It's strong. It's not a mirage. We have hope, confident expectation. Before I wrap up, let me just say 1 Peter 3.15 says it in a very concise way in terms of sharing our faith with our family and friends. Sharing our story. Sharing our faith with our family and friends. He says in 1 Peter 3.15, be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you of the hope that lies within but do it with gentleness and respect. Hope is the key word. The next very important word is from those who ask. That's the other thing we feel guilty about. Well, we don't tell Christ to everybody we see. You don't have to tell Christ to everybody you see. This says, be ready to give an answer of the person that asks you. Now, the Lord can drop a, a, a sense of peace in your heart, like, go talk to that person right there in the coffee shop. He does that all the time. But I'm just saying, so many believers are guilty because they don't share their faith enough. Peter says, just wait for them to come to you and then give them a hopeful answer. Now, some people have the gift of evangelism, that's different. They'll talk to everybody. The clerk at Fred Meyer, the guy at the gas station, and people that are not even asking. This is a hope that we have. 
We stake our life on it. We believe in it. I close with this. Now, psychologists, I'm going to take a psychologist rule of thumb and apply it to the scripture because this is exactly what the scripture says. Psychologists say that there are three basic needs that everybody has. Christian, non-Christian, Buddhist, doesn't matter. Male, female, doesn't matter. There are three needs that we all have. Number one, something to do. Something to do. A reason to wake up in the morning. That's why, for those of you that are going to retire like me, I don't want to be like one of the people, and I could be, but I don't want to be like one of the people that retires so I can go back to work. I am still, we're still here, you know, and we're available. You're our church family, and I'll still be involved. They'll call me off the bench sometime and bring me up here. I hope. Nevertheless, something to do, a reason to wake up, a goal to strive for. And if you don't have one, something to do, ask the Lord to give you wisdom to find out what that is. Because he's got a purpose for your life. And he doesn't play games. Number one, something to do. Number two, someone to love. Now we have that in the Lord Jesus. You have other people in your life. But if you're single and you feel very much alone, you have someone to love. He's loved the life out of you, and he wants you to just love him back. That's your purpose. Something to do. What's your will, Lord? Open the right door, close the wrong one. And in some cases, if you have two doors, just start walking, and he'll direct you to the right one and close the wrong one. That's the way he works. Don't be paralyzed. He's not going to drop a job through your ceiling. He wants you to go out and look, and then you'll find. He will not allow you to make the wrong decision. Can you think about that? If you're rebellious, you may make the wrong decision. But if you say, Lord, I am willing to do whatever you want to do. I don't know what that is, but I don't want to go on the wrong door. Then when you start walking in that direction... He will close the wrong one and open the right one. You must rest in that. He will do that for you. He will not misguide you or mislead you. Something to do, someone to love, and here's where the hope comes. Something to look forward to. People start taking their lives, committing suicide, when they lose hope because there's nothing to look forward to. That is something that you and I can never say. We should never say, I don't have a reason to live anymore. And there's nothing to look forward. We have the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your truths, for your word, for these nine weeks where, Lord, the wisdom of our church fathers took the whole of the scriptures 
and whittled down the most important beliefs and tenets so that we could just look at this and get a snapshot of the entire plan and purposes of God and for your people in a single page. I would ask tonight, Lord, if there's anyone here at all that does have doubts about the resurrection, about their eternal life, that you would either give them a piece about it or bring them to Christ tonight so that they never have that doubt again. I would also pray, Lord, for those that are very, very sensitive and maybe shame has just bothered them for years. Lord, would you somehow, by your Spirit, give them the capacity to feel completely clean and forgiven and to never look back as you do with us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.